cheerful stuff for a Sunday morning. I knew you needed cheering up today. A little bit about vultures and dead bodies is just the way to go. I know you're all thinking it. We might as well say it out loud. These are not straightforward words. They're not easy words. Uh, They're not words that we turn to when we're thinking, gosh, I need something really encouraging and cheerful. I'm going to you know, I'm going to go and read the, the Lord's My Shepherd in Psalm 23, or I'm going to go and um, read Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're not going to read about vultures and dead bodies, and one being taken and another left. But actually, in the context of what we've just been praying for as we were led by Linda, and in the context of the world in which we live, actually these words are exactly the words I think we need to hear. Because they have to do with how do we deal with a world that is not as we want it to be? How do we deal with a world that is phenomenally unpredictable, seemingly intractable, seemingly out of our control? Actually, down through human history, one of the most constant things in the midst of that turbulent world um, is what you might call the the, um, desire to predict the future, to know what will come. It's perhaps one of the most sort of human things that we do in terms of trying to get a handle on this out-of-control world, having a sense of what's going to come next. We can be prepared. We can know. Maybe we can change it. So go back a few hundred years, and that whole sort of prediction thing would have been, would have been sort of in the prophetic or in the sort of occult realm. If you want to know what was going to happen in the future, you'd have killed a chicken and looked at its entrails, um, or you'd have had a sort of ecstatic experience um, of God or of some sort of prophetic vision. Come to our present day, and we may not do so much with the entrails of chickens, but we certainly have pundits. I'm not comparing the two. It's very important that I make that clear. But the fact is that punditry is one of the great growing um, professions. That's a a long and honourable, mostly, tradition. I don't just mean weather forecasts. I mean those who look at what's happening today and make a prediction about the future. So sport is an obvious one. Nobody goes on TV as a sports pundit just to describe what's happening in front of you. You do that, that's commentary, but punditry is saying, therefore, this is what's going to happen next, you know, therefore they're going to win the game, or therefore next time they play they're going to have a different manager or a different team, or in three years' time, of course, they're going to win the World Cup. Uh, Pundits want to take what happens today and in the past and use their experience, their knowledge, their wisdom, their insight, their rationality to predict the future. The same happens with news, News pundits are those who try and give some sense of stability to life by predicting what's going to happen. And of course, if 2016 has taught us anything at all, it is that we are on somewhat of a fool's errand to try and predict the future. We are no better at predicting tomorrow than we are at predicting next week, next month, the rest of this year, the rest of this decade, or what will be happening um, when our own children are retired and have grandchildren of their own. It is a task that we are desperate to achieve, but we realise on a daily basis we're not very good at. How do we deal with a future that feels uncertain? And at times, maybe like today, can feel not just uncertain, but unfriendly. Not just that we don't know, but actually we're fearful of what that future will bring. How do we deal with with it. Well, the, the conversation that we've got in front of us from Luke 17, as we're carrying on our journey with Jesus through Luke, has Jesus dealing with what you might describe as two pedals. Um, it, it's quite a neat illustration for describing how often in Scripture we have communicated to us two things that are both true, 
but it's almost impossible to stand on at the same time. I mean, you know what happens if you're riding a bike and you try and press both pedals at the same time? You fall off. Um, or in a car, when you try and both accelerate and brake at the same time, you know, burn something out somewhere. The fact is that you push the pedal that's up. And what you find that Jesus with the Pharisees, he pushes one pedal, and Jesus with the disciples, he pushes the other. But both are both true and important. And they have to do with the nature of the kingdom of God and how we can look at the future through the eyes of faith. So, um, verses 20 and 21, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were uh, the religious leaders of the day, uh, Jewish religious leaders, and they had a lot of stake in the future. And in particular, the thing they were looking for, the thing they were always trying to be religious pundits about, try and predict, was the coming of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God would look like this. It would be when God was seen to be the king that they always knew that he was. And that would be shown, so they believed, when God would defeat their enemies, rescue them from their enemies, vindicate them as a people, and give them their own king back. Now, at that moment in time, some 2,000 years ago in Palestine, uh, God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, were absolutely under the boot of an oppressor. As far as they were concerned, it was the Romans. The Roman Empire extended through Israel-Palestine. They were desperate for the Romans to be defeated, to be thrown out, for them to be vindicated. But it wasn't the only time in their history. In fact, pretty much the whole of ancient Israel's history was that of being a sort of political football kicked around between the great sort of geopolitical powers of the day, whether it was the Babylonians or the Romans, didn't really matter. In the end, they were at the beck and call of whoever happened to be in the ascendancy in that particular era. And it meant that this promise God had given them of a promised land, their own king, their own uh, way of uh, worship and their own way of life was all the time being uh, beaten back, trodden down. And the thing they longed for the thing they worked for, the thing they lived for, was the day when God's Messiah, his chosen one, his anointed one, would come and bring in God's kingdom, kick out the oppressor, sit on the throne as God's king, and all would be right with the world. They would be vindicated as being God's chosen people. And, as the Pharisees, they felt their job was to be able to say, here it is, it's coming, it's just around the corner, If you live the right way, if you pray the right way, if there's a whole people, we honour God, God will come. And so when Jesus comes talking about the kingdom of God, whether to try and trip him up or trick him, whether in a sense of irony and rather making fun of him, or whether because they really thought he might know, they say to him, so go on then, when's the kingdom of God coming? When's God going to act? And what Jesus says to them is, you're so desperate to see the kingdom of God coming, that you've missed it right here, right now, in your midst. Uh, The the language that's used there in verse 21 where it says the kingdom of God is within you probably is better translated the kingdom of God is among you. But both sort of work because he was both saying here is the kingdom of God with you. Here I am, the king, come to be with you and among you and you've missed it. You're so busy looking at this big geopolitical upheaval you expect God to do. You've missed him amongst you, just walking in the dust of Palestine. But he also meant there is something of the kingdom of God within you, where God is honoured as king in someone's life. There the kingdom of God 
is established. That's one pedal, if you like. The other pedal comes in the rest of the verses, verse 22 onwards, where he turns away from the Pharisees. We don't know whether it was at the same time, the same conversation, or whether it was on another day. And he turns to his disciples, and he doesn't talk about this, if you like, hidden kingdom of God, that sense of the rule of God in someone's heart. Here he is talking about the great upheavals of history. It would have been very tempting, you see, for the disciples to think of themselves as far too small to bother themselves with the great things of uh, political power um, or of the sort of cataclysmic happenings in the world. It would have been very easy for them to be hugely fearful in their tiny fledgling sort of uh, um, movement of what was happening in the world around them, to look at the Romans and think, well, we can't beat that. So what Jesus does, as you'll have noticed, is to pick up on two huge events that happen in the Old Testament. The first is Noah and the flood. The other is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot and his family. And there are three things that both of those um, events in the Old Testament have in common. Uh, The first is simply that God's in control. The second is that his people are rescued. And the third and this is the most important thing, and I think the heart of why he's talking about them, is that it's unexpected. You couldn't be sitting there and look at the sky in the days of Noah and go, there's a storm coming. That was the whole point. They didn't know there was a storm coming. That's the whole point of the story. They didn't know God did. Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't know the destruction was coming. There is the unexpectedness, and yet the knowledge that God is still on the throne. How does this language help us with tomorrow? How does this language help us with what's going to be on TV, on the news tonight? How does it help us with what may happen in 2017? There's plenty to come. We're we're only in March. The year is yet young. Who knows what will come? How does this help us? Well, I think firstly, I, I think, sorry, I think the way into that is to think of the different horizons that Jesus's words work at. Words about the future in the Bible, it's often helpful to think of them on the different horizons that they apply to. And in this case, I think there are three horizons. It's a bit like being able to see there, going up a little bit higher, being able to see a little bit further, going up higher again, being able to see further. You're still looking in the same direction. All three horizons are important. They each say slightly different but equally important things. And the first horizon is this. I think some of what Jesus was talking about was going to be immediately fulfilled within their lifetime. Uh, roughly 40 years after these words, in AD 70, the Romans came, surrounded Jerusalem, besieged it, and in the end came in and um, desecrated the holy temple of the Jewish people. They set up banners for the emperor king, uh, for Caesar that was to be worshipped. Huge destruction, many, many, many people killed, some terrible things that happened. And, And you simply had to run if you wanted to survive. And Jesus um, talks to them and says there in um, uh, verse 31, for example, on that day, no one who was on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember, Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. The parallel passages in Matthew and Mark are even more explicit, and they were even more clearly um, fulfilled in AD 70. There was going to be this terrible cataclysmic event And if you experienced it, you didn't stand around waiting for God to sort of pluck you out of harm's way. You ran. Now, what does that say to us? 
Well, what it says to us is the world, as we experience it, is full of these cataclysmic events. In the midst of all the sort of joys and the the sort of straightforwardness of day-by-day life, we're also aware that we live in a world with earthquakes, with wars, uh, with disease. This reminds us that we are not God, but God is God, that God is king, that we aren't on some sort of runaway train that's going to derail. We're not on some sort of um, uh, hellish um, roller coaster ride that's got not just a stop at the end, but an empty bit of track, and you're going to just fall into nothingness. We aren't somehow at the mercy of a merciless history. That actually, when we watch the news, when we look at our world, we are to be reminded that, yes, these things happen. No, we can't guarantee that somehow there's going to be this magic moment. Every Christian is always going to be sort of whipped out of harm's way. But God is still king. The God who made the universe hasn't taken his hands off the wheel. He's not asleep in the back. He's not just letting this career down the hill into destruction. Jesus knew this was coming in AD 70. He was able to look ahead and say, don't be fooled. But he was also reassuring because if God knows it's coming... That means God hasn't let go. God hasn't fallen asleep. It's not that God doesn't care. But in this world of human sin, in a broken world that's turned its back on him, even then, he refuses to simply turn his back on it. So that's one horizon. Maybe 30, 40 years after Jesus' time. But of course, there is another horizon here. And it's hinted at in the language of the Son of Man coming. Great lightning and great clouds. It's picking up the language of Daniel the great prophet of the Old Testament, picked up elsewhere in the New Testament. There is this promise that there is a horizon that is still to come when one day God will draw a line under history. When Jesus, who has come the first time and lived and died and rose again, will return and will wrap things up. That actually this, uh, this roller coaster ride, this you know, uh, train we're on that seems to just be sort of piling through history that we feel powerless to stop or to steer actually has an end. Not a, a, an end that is destruction, not an end that sort of falls off a cliff, but much more like the end of a race where we're guaranteed there is a finishing tape and more than that, there's a victory celebration afterwards. We may not know when it comes, but we know that it will come, that the Son of Man will one day turn up draw a line under history, wrap things up, and there will be, as the book of Revelation puts it, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain or death or dying or separation or loneliness or heartbreak. God will put all things right. It could be this afternoon at two o'clock. It could be in ten years' time. It could be in a thousand years' time. The point that Jesus is making is, it's not for us to know. He says, there aren't going to be simple signs that tell you, you know, it's coming in a year or it's coming in 10 years. Don't please ever buy the silliness that says that somehow, oh, this happening, this thing over here, that proves it, we're in the last days. We're always in the last days. From when Jesus came the first time to when Jesus came the, comes the second time, the whole of that, the Bible calls, the last days. Those are the last days. The last days were there in AD 70 when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. That must have felt to them like the end of the world. They'll have umpteen things in our lifetimes that for the people who are there must have felt like the end of the world. And Jesus simply says, you won't know when it's coming, but it is coming. 
God will draw a line under history. The Son of Man will be revealed. That race will be run. The finish line will be crossed. And there will be a victory celebration of glory. It's what we long for. You know, when you and I watch the news or read a newspaper or hear of something terrible happening in our own family, don't we just long for that day when things are just put right? That heartache we feel, that sometimes scream of pain and anger in us that just says the world isn't like it's meant to be. Well, that's absolutely right. The world isn't as it's meant to be. It's meant to make us long for the day when Jesus will return and put all things right. And we live today in the knowledge of that future when the king will be seen to be king. And in the meantime, well, in between these two horizons is the horizon of today. And the horizon of today is what Jesus was talking about with the Pharisees. (laughs) He's a little early. Do you want to just press a button because that's slightly freaky? Don't, please don't press the disco button because that really could be the end. My, my suggestion is this is not the version we podcast. Anyway, that would be, be very hard to explain, or explain in the context of all that. Oh, yes, that's what I was talking about. Um, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, what he's saying to them is this, that in the person of Jesus, and now as we experience Jesus in the person of his Holy Spirit, We have the opportunity to live now, today, in our own lives, in our own day, as citizens of the kingdom that is to come. Because the King, Jesus, gets to reign in our hearts, not just internally and privately, but in our lives, lived and spoken and expressed, as an anticipation, a taste of what's to come in the life of the world to come. So when you allow King Jesus to rule in your heart and your life, to shape the way you speak, to shape the way you use your money, to shape the way you use your time, to shape the sort of parent you are, the sort of friend you are, or how you are at work, when you allow King Jesus to shape your life as your king, then the kingdom of God is at work in you. And when you pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are expressing that whole picture of the horizon of today. Your kingdom come now. Your will be done now on earth through my life as it is in heaven. But it also says your kingdom isn't here fully yet. This is only a taste of what's to come. This is a looking ahead. This is a preempting. This is a bringing into being of what's to come. Uh, one very famous theologian, Oscar Kuhlman, talked in terms of uh, during the Second World War when the landings happened and they started to roll back um, the occupation of France. Each time troops, uh, allied troops, came into a village or a town, they were like a first taste of the full liberation that was to come. It wasn't done yet, it wasn't fully completed, but it was a taste of what's to come. You and I get to roll back the kingdom of darkness and to bring in a taste of the kingdom of Jesus. And why is it worth it? Well, it's worth it because this world is not out of control. God's hands aren't off the wheel. God hasn't fallen asleep in the back. There is a finish line and a victory to come. So whatever this year holds, whatever the next 10 years hold, and it will hold glory and pain, it will hold light and darkness, there will be all sorts of things we can't predict that are wonderful and all sorts of things we can't predict that are terrible and we have to run from. But in the midst of it all, we trust in the promise of the future and we live out 
the truth of his kingdom in our lives now so that we can bring a taste of his kingdom to others. Let's pray, and then John's going to lead us in worship. Jesus, thank you for the promise that you are both the king on the throne now, the one who holds the reins of history, the one who never uh, falls asleep or walks away, but also that there will come a day when you return in glory, the Son of Man, in great clouds, unexpectedly and beautifully. We long for that day, but in the meantime, we commit ourselves to living out what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom in our words, in our actions, in our use of all the resources and life that you've given us, in being the people you've called us to be, that the world would see a little bit more of the life and rule of the king, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.